I don't like the unknown. I don't like having to discover stuff the hard way. It's uncomfortable. And I think sometimes these sections of scriptures get treated that way. They're just uncomfortable. Like you have to spend time with it and dig and figure out what's going on. And because of that, we sometimes avoid them when in fact there might be something incredible if we could just lean in. So um, what I want to do is I want to take you and drop you in to a mysterious four verses in Genesis chapter 14. That's where we're going to start. These four verses are written and then never explained. The Torah doesn't say anything about them. In fact, in the rest of the Tanakh, there's only one verse about it, and it starts to give at least a little bit of insight into what was happening there, but we don't really grasp the full extent of this until a writer in Hebrews really digs into it. But until then, the whole thing is just awash in mystery. What's happening? Why? Who knows? Well, we're going to find out. Uh, let me give you some background. These four verses take place before Israel is a nation. In fact, it's so early in the story, Abraham hasn't had his name changed yet. He's still Abram. There's no law. There's no... He doesn't even have a kid yet. There's nothing. There's a great idea and a promise from God. That's it. And then we find this little thing happening. Um, Lot, who is a nephew of Abram, decides to go and live in the city of Sodom, which is not good news because Sodom gets in a war with some other cities and they lose. And everything, their food, their possessions, the people themselves are all carted out of the city and taken as a trophy by these other kings and off they go. Lot is included. This makes it to Abram. He finds out about this. He rallies his men. He grabs a few allies that he has. And they pursue these kings. They get into a battle. And they win. And the laws are clear. Everybody kind of understood. This is the way it worked in the ancient world. As soon as Abram won, he's allowed to keep everything. The food, the possessions, the people. He owns them all. To the victor goes the spoils was the way this worked. Except he concluded that if he chose to do this, that people might think that he got wealthy and became successful because of something like that instead of the God he served. So he decided, I'm not going to take this stuff. But before he gives it back, four verses pop up in Genesis 14 that are just odd. And he actually responds to some of this and does something unexpected, okay? So let me introduce you. This is verse 17 of 14. After Abram returned from defeating, and it goes on and tells you who he defeated, where he defeated, gives you some of the backstory of all of this. But this has happened after all of that is done, after he's concluded, I'm not going to keep all of this stuff. I'm going to give it back. He's coming back from that war, and then this happens. Verse 18, the Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. Who's this guy? And literally, that's a legitimate question because up to this point in the Scriptures, the only other person you've heard named by a single name is Adam. Everybody else that you will be introduced to in the Hebrew text, they're going to be the son of somebody. Not this guy. Apparently, he has no genealogy. That's weird. That's weird in and of itself. He's the king of Salam, the king of peace. Do you hear that, the term Salam there? Jerusalem, Salam? Almost all scholars believe that where this guy was living at the time would eventually become Jerusalem. So he's king there, okay? And then he brings out bread and wine. What does that make you think of, bread and wine? How many of you thought communion? You thought communion. How many of you thought Passover? Maybe Passover? Guess what? None of that stuff exists. It's not even on the radar yet. And yet here we have this guy bringing out bread and wine. And then the, the second part of verse 18 says this. He was priest of God most high. Excuse me? He's priest? Here's what we know about priests. They come from the line of Levi. Levi's great-grandfather hasn't been born yet. How are you calling this guy a priest? And did you also notice that he was king and he's priest? That's really odd. You're not going to see that anywhere else in the text. There might have been places where that happened in other ancient cultures. You'll not find that in any of the Hebrew, like reigning. There's no king who was also priest. These were different roles. They came from different lines of people. And yet this guy is claiming to do that. And did you see what he said? He's priest of God most high. If you go and you look at the words that they put together here, you would come to the conclusion that he was worshiping the same God as Abram. That's, that's what the text is trying to clearly communicate. This is the same God. Wait! Are you telling me that there is a guy who is not in Abraham's line who represents God as a priest who stands in, as an intermediary between God and mankind. And right here, it seems to suggest that. And in verse 19, he starts acting like a priest. He, he blessed Abraham by saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about curses and blessings. Here you have one where somebody is asking for the blessing on somebody, this is what a priest would do, intermediary between God and mankind, is asking for a blessing on your behalf. Did you see the language once again? 
God most high, creator of heaven and earth, these are all very Jewish-like sayings. But if we understand this correctly, this is a Canaanite person. This is somebody outside of the story up until this point who is talking and acting this way. Now in verse 20, he rightly gives credit to God for the victory that Abram saw. And then it finishes, the verse finishes, I don't know if I put up 21, but it should be verse 20. It says this, then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. It's really verse 20, it's not 21. Gave him a tenth of everything. This is what you would do with a priest. There was a lot of giving that was happening in the Jewish culture. None of that is written into the law. It doesn't exist. There's no command. There's no demand for it. But this is just a response. And he starts treating him like a priest. And here's what gets said about all of that. That's it. There's no more. There is nothing said about why. There is nothing said about who. There's nothing said about why does this guy not have a genealogy? There is so much mystery in those four verses. I can tell you right now, that would not fly at my house. I told you I like to watch a good mystery on TV. I watch it with a group of people who don't like mystery very much. And 20 minutes into one of those movies, they will start asking me who done it. And they will start putting out their guesses for who done it. And I don't know how often I have to say, can we just watch and see how this unfolds? I mean, it sounds like a question, but it's really, it should be said more like a beggar. Can we watch and see how this unfolds? Because I'm going to say it two or three times. But if I said it in this case, it wouldn't help you. There's nothing that can said. And so what happens in my house is that all kinds of people start to speculate. They come up with theories about what's happening here. And my friends, that is exactly what has happened with this section of Scripture. Because it's full of so much mystery, there is tons of speculation that has come. I'm going to put a list of things that people have speculated over the years about what is going on here. Um... Nope, not the one. Did I not put him up there? Is there one where it says, ha ha, all right. I was like, I could have left it off. I do that all the time. Some have said it was the Holy Spirit. Some have said it's an angel. A theophany, which is just a picture of God for mankind to reason with. So it was written in as just a picture. It wasn't really somebody. It was just a picture of it. It was a theophany. This was Christ appearing before it came as a, as a baby, all of these theories have been, let me add one more. Let me add one more. He's a normal guy from Canaan. Now here's what I can tell you. When something is more mysterious, a more mysterious conclusion becomes easier to accept. And loads and loads of people have fallen somewhere on the top of that list as their conclusion to who Melchizedek is. Did I say it wrong? Melchiz Melchizedek. 
I had to look that up. I, I listened to a guy who sounded like he was from the Middle East. I think I've got it right, okay? But um, let me help you with something, because I've done a little bit of research, and I think this could be helpful. There's actually a Canaanite town called Ugarit. It's a really fun word to say. You want to try it? Ugarit. Ugarit. It sounds like something you would say after you just ate some bad yogurt. Ugarit, right? Um, as you're trying to get it out, I feel that way about normal yogurt. Um, so we have Ugarit up here. It was a trade city, very wealthy city, a lot of, lot of business there. We know they were wealthy because their homes were two stories and they built them on foundations that were earthquake resistant. This, this was a happening town that had a lot of money. They have been excavating there since 1928. And what they have found is thousands, thousands of cuneiforms. A cuneiform is um, they had some clay and they wanted to record something. And so they would put these images in the clay and then they would let it harden and then you would have this permanent record. You would have this permanent record of whatever was going on. And they have literally found thousands of, of cuneiforms about everything that goes on in Canaanite culture. They have business transactions. They have cultural things that were happening. There's a chunk, a grouping of these cuneiforms. They're about their religious beliefs and their religious practices. There were so many that they were able to look at those and create an actual history of Canaanite belief. It's interesting because what they found was around the time of Abram, the Canaanites believed that there was one God, the creator God, and only he should be worshipped. Now also found in the cuneiforms was that over time, the Canaanites started trading down. They started worshiping the creation instead of the creator. They worshiped the sun, the moon, the stars, thunderstorms, anything that they thought was impacting their life. They assumed another God could be involved with that. And they moved away from worshiping one God. But at this time in history, it's pretty clear there was a whole group of people that would have fit the historical context that you see in this scripture where Abram comes across a guy who's not Jewish, who's not part of the story, who really believed that there was one God who was the creator of the heavens and the earth and should be worshipped. This guy was part of the story. And the question is, why? Why was the story written this way? Because if he's a normal guy from Cana, he had a dad. And it should have been in the story. Unless, unless, the writer of the story decided to leave out certain things and to put in certain things in order to create a mystery. In order to create, I would go to, as far as to say, a model, and you're going to see this unfold. Like he's trying to do something on purpose 
that's going to get under everybody's skin and stick with them for a long time. We know this worked because King David writes about Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4. He says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, isn't that interesting? I mean, we were in the Torah. Did you ever see an order get established? Did, did you see that kind of thing happen? They have been reasoning, thinking, dealing with this section of Scripture that they had in their history, and their conclusion was God was creating a different order of priest. That's all we've got right here. It's got to be a different order of priest. But it's been eating at them. And you see it coming out here. It's going to continue to eat at this nation until the writer of Hebrews makes a mountain out of a molehill. I mean, there's just, there's not a lot there. And all of a sudden, there's a lot there. And I just want to point out, these were people who were inspired by God to draw these lines and to make these connections. So I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 7, where things really start to get interesting. In Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 2, um, um, it says, hey, isn't it interesting that Melchizedek's name was king of righteousness could also mean king of peace. So when he was named king, he had this. In verse 3, it goes on and says this. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. David said he was a priest forever. He said that because... There was no time when his life started. There was no recorded end of his days. And so they just said, look, this guy just kind of spans the time. He's just always a priest. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh, we've just found another person who's like that. We've just found another king of peace. We've just found somebody without genealogy. And you're like, no, 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 Jesus has genealogy. I've read Matthew that genealogy is laid out for you to understand that Jesus was put into the house of David. But it's Joseph's genealogy. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. But he's adopted, kind of adopted into that family. And adoption was strong. It was like, it was like you were family in the ancient world. So he has, he has no genealogy. There's no beginning to his story. There's no end to his story. It goes on in verse 4 and comments about how Abraham gave Melchizedek 10%. Like he's, he's treating him like he's somebody special. And now we're doing that with God himself. He goes on and says in verse 6 that he doesn't trace his descendant from Levi. Neither did Jesus. Jesus came from the line of David, right? He was, he was adopted into that house. So he should not have been able to be priest. But before this, 
In Hebrews chapter 4, he's actually called the high priest, which is exactly who Melchizedek is too. In verse 12, it says this, For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. And what the writer is suggesting is that this guy, Jesus, is so far outside of the boundaries of what we have understood about how things should work that if it's true who he is, who he says he is, everything has to change. All of these laws that we've based our life on are going to have to go away. We're going to have to do something else because of how this is playing out. In verse 20, he says that most priests... Um, others became priests without an oath, specifically Melchizedek. He was appointed by God to be a priest. Every other priest in the Levi code would actually have to swear an oath in order for them to step into the role and to fulfill the role. Jesus did not. He was appointed by God to be priest. And then it gets really cool in verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He's talking about Jesus. He says, and unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. These other priests who represented God would sacrifice day after day to try to keep things cleared up between people and God. Representations of a sacrifice of blood that had to take place, but not Jesus. Jesus didn't need that because why? Because he was the bread and wine. He offered his body and his blood for one-time sacrifice. And he did that because he was blameless. He was exalted. And it was required. Because if we were going to ever get like right with God, we were either going to have to go through day after day of sacrifices or somebody was going to have to do one sacrifice once for all. And that's what Jesus did. I want, I want to just take you back. He's highlighting here all of these differences. These differences of other priests. He was set apart from sinners. He made a sacrifice. He was king. By the way, Timothy mentions that he's king. He's high priest. He's all of these things. Why is that important? Well, because you're in need of a king. You're in need of somebody who's worthy to be followed, who can be trusted, who gets it right. You're in need of a priest who stands between you and God. And when you step up with your filthy rags and you say, look, I've sinned, I've messed up, I've got a lot of junk in my life, 
And Jesus steps forward and says, yeah, I've covered that. They're with me. And God says, they're part of the family. Bring them in. It's important because you needed somebody who would become a sacrifice, who would give their body and blood instead of you giving yours. You needed somebody who would be a king of peace to your life because this world does not offer you that. And what I love about this, what I love about this little mystery that you see in the text is that before Abram had his name changed, you and I were on the heart and mind of God. That he knew that establishing a nation wasn't going to be enough. That he knew making them a beacon where they could shine and represent him wasn't going to be enough. He was going to have to create a nation where somebody would have to come and become a sacrifice for you. And so early, early, so early in the story, before anything else has unfolded, God plants this seed that would grow into this idea of Jesus. And he wanted it. He wanted this mystery that would get under our skin, disrupt us, cause us to speculate, wonder what is going on here, so that when you finally saw somebody else who fit the model, you would go, now I get it. Because up until this point, there hasn't been a single person like Jesus that the Jewish nation could look at and understand. The closest thing they have is four verses of a mysterious guy embedded in a text in the Torah. And all of a sudden, the writer of Hebrews goes, our king is like that. He has no end of his days. He had no beginning. He has that much power. He's king. He's priest. He, like he's the whole package. He was sacrificed for you. Which if you wonder why, like why does Waypoint talk about Jesus so much? Can I help you? It's passages like this that make it like obviously clear to us that Jesus isn't just this nice side story that's happening in the text. He's central to the whole thing. Before the story gets written about Israel, God is embedding in it this picture of who Jesus would become for us. Why? Because he's central. He's that important. Which raises this really obvious question. How have you responded to Jesus? How have you responded to Jesus? Because he's just not an important figure in the text who lived his life a certain way that we could admire. He is the story. He is the one that's worth following. He's your king. 
He's the one who stands between you and God, offering you hope. He's the one who looks at your messed up life, the bad choices, the sin, all the junk that you've piled up, and says, I'll die for that. I'll offer you forgiveness. I'll become the bread and the wine. I'll bless your life. I'll I'll open up your life to be connected with God in a way that you couldn't have had before. He does all of this. So how have you responded to him? Sadly, the Canaanites at one point worshipped this creator God and they traded down That trading down still goes on today. I I watch people who trade down. They they could have a connection with Jesus, king, priest, sacrifice, blesser. They could have all of that. And instead, they want more stuff. I just want more money. I want more wealth. I want to do whatever I can to get more stuff because it makes me feel good for a little period of time. I watch people trade down so that people will like them. I'll do whatever it takes for people to like me. That's what's king for me. And I'll bend over backwards. I'll do whatever so that I can have friends, so that I can be liked, and I'll trash my life if I have to in the process of it. I've watched people trade down because they have a desire in their life that's the most important thing to them. And they want what they want. No matter if somebody else says, look, I'm going to provide a boundary that would be protection for you. I don't care about your protection. I want what I want. And there is a power struggle, and you'd rather have the power than offer it to a king. And you trade down for your desire? Honestly, it could be almost anything People trade down for hobbies. They trade down for politics. They trade down for family. These are not bad things, but when they become the thing that's most important to you, that's central to your life, you end up chasing your tail in a circle that will never satisfy. You get exhausted, you get anxious, you get frustrated, And what you missed was that there was a God who offered you an escape from all of that. And all it required was that instead of you and the stuff that you care about more being central to your life, he becomes central. Central to the story of the scriptures, central to your story. He becomes king. He becomes your priest. He becomes your sacrifice. He becomes the one that you're willing to give 10% to. Like, I'm giving you my life. I get, I get what that represents. All of this comes from you, and this just represents this. I'm like, I give you my attention and my time and my energy. And because of that, Your life is different 
There is only one high king. There is only one high priest. How have you responded to Jesus? I, I want you to think about that for a little bit. So I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and to bow your head right now. They're going to turn the light on. Don't worry about that. I, I just need to be able to see some stuff. And I just want to, I just want to talk to you this morning. If you haven't ever made a decision to put Jesus first in your life, like to be central to everything that you do, if you haven't made that decision, I'm telling you right now, you're going to be able to look around in your life and find something you've traded down to, and it's going to be obvious. God's going to bring that to your heart and your mind right now. And I want you to pay close attention to that because you already know this, but that will never satisfy you. It will never fill you. It will never be enough. And if you want something more than that, maybe today's the day where you make a choice. Where you say, you know what? I have been pursuing something else, but today I choose Jesus. I'm going to bring him all my junk, all my failure, all the sin that I've got packed up. I'm going to lay it at his feet. And I'm going to choose to follow him. I'm going to make him my king. I'm going to make him my priest. I'm going to accept his sacrifice. I'm going to be blessed. And if you're thinking, yeah, that's what I want right now, then I want you to make that choice. I want you to make that choice in your heart. Jesus, I choose you. I choose you. If you've done that right now, I'd love for you to just look up and meet me in the eyes. And if I acknowledge you, then you can put your head back down. Yeah? The other group I want to talk to this morning is at some point, there were those of you who made a choice to follow Jesus at some point in your life. You were serious about it. You gave it a lot of effort. But if you were being honest this morning, at some point along that journey, you traded down. Something else became more important. Something else became central. And you've realized this morning that can't keep happening in my life. So just ask you to talk to God. You've got a little bit of time here. Admit what's been number one. Ask some forgiveness for that. And decide to make him your king, your priest again. Put yourself in a place where the blessings of knowing him could flow into your life. It's just this simple. God, forgive me. 
I've moved you off center. I love you. I want you back in your rightful place. If you found yourself making that simple little prayer this morning, would you just pick your head up and look at me so I can just affirm with you, yeah, that you're making a a choice to get things back on track. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yep. God, you embedded a mystery into the scriptures. Because you had every intention of fulfilling it, of becoming this mysterious thing that's hard for us to comprehend, somebody who lived perfectly, somebody who would sacrifice for us, somebody who's worthy of being king, who's worthy of being a priest, one that we would come to and worship. God, I ask that you would draw our hearts and minds to you. That we would continue to put you at the center of all that we do. Because you're worth it. You deserve it. May you be the king of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.